0: Namo tā sav kāvātū arāhatu sambhāsa buddha-sāṁ Namo tā sav kāvātū arāhatu sambhāsa Namo tā sav kāvātū arāhatu sambhāsa buddha-sāṁ The question that has been sent in that I'd like to consider this evening says How can world pain be harnessed as a fuel driver towards disenchantment? Is the angst of existence a natural phase of the journey to awakening? I've paraphrased that just a little bit. So, how can world pain be harnessed as a fuel driver towards disenchantment? Is the angst of existence a natural phase of the journey to awakening? Well, the first thing I would say in response to that is that looking at the world we live in and feeling weary, uh, even sad, is completely natural. The idea that we should be feeling happy about everything all the time is um, a form of uh, naive idealism. You look at the potential that we human beings have for doing wonderful things and generating great benefit for ourselves and for each other and, and then observe the folly and heedlessness of human beings. Sadness is a very natural and I'd say appropriate response. And, and It's important that we keep reminding ourselves, as we make effort in this practice, that everything is included on the path. There isn't any prescription. There isn't any guarantees about what will or won't happen. Whatever's happening is what we need to be receiving into our practice. Whatever's happening is our practice. Maybe you know, some of you have come across that book, a collection of teachings of Ajahn Chah, which says everything is teaching us, which is a good reminder of this point. Mm-hmm. Whatever's happening is our practice. Mm. As to whether this perception, this feeling of world weariness is functional and can lead to disenchantment, or by that I, I, uh, I understand the question is, is talking about uh, clarity, understanding, uh, contentment, mm. whether or not that perception of world weariness is functional and is serving letting go and uh, increased clarity and understanding or whether that experience of world weariness takes us to uh, disillusionment of the kind that leads to depression is down to one very straightforward, simple phenomena, which we'll all be familiar with to some degree, and that is clinging. If the perception of world weariness arises and we can receive that, perception, that feeling, into a well-developed field of awareness, a spaciousness of heart, then yes, that perception of world weariness can be very helpful, like a lever unhooking us from our heedlessness. However, if we're still locked into um, clinging to feelings, to thoughts, to perceptions, and we don't have a perspective on the feeling of world weariness, well, it can take us in a very unhelpful direction. and We end up getting depressed and really fall into despair. So clinging, clinging or not clinging, that's really what we're talking about here. And of course, remembering that clinging is not merely a concept, I mean, the concept of clinging, that's, that's fine, it's useful, uh, concepts obviously have their place but it's like any other idea we might think, like the idea of, of breakfast you know, here we are, it's 7 o'clock or 8 o'clock in the evening thinking about breakfast the, the thought of breakfast just makes you more hungry actually in 12 hours time, eating breakfast is great it's a whole different experience so the thought, the concept is one thing the actuality is another dimension. And so let's remember that when we're contemplating such questions as this, and not just with regards to world weariness, but many other areas of practice as well, it can be functional or dysfunctional, it can be helpful or um, harmful, and depending on whether we are clinging. And that clinging is. A collapsing of the field of awareness. It's, it's a constriction of the heart. The concept clinging, yes, that's one thing. It gives us a conceptual understanding, certainly has its place. That's what we call pariyati dhamma, the first step, the studying about practice. But then patipati dhamma, the actual practice, the engaging in it, is another level, another dimension altogether. So, clinging or not clinging, and the consequences of clinging are very serious. Those of you that are familiar with the scriptures and perhaps remember that incident where the Buddha was teaching the monks a meditation on loathsomeness so as to bring about disenchantment and letting go and, and then went away for a while and came back and several of the monks had committed suicide. Disenchantment arose but they were clinging to that feeling, world weariness arose but they were clinging to that feeling and so their practice went in an altogether unfortunate and regrettable direction so clinging or not clinging is really important it makes a world of difference and and again, not just the concept, uh, just a mere concept of clinging is not enough, we need to bring it into the body to feel what does the whole body feel like when we cling to a thought to a thought about how sad this circumstance is. We find ourselves in The amazing amount of opportunity, an amazing degree of education and affluence and understanding and opportunity for generating real benefit and what do human beings do? They Just fill the oceans with plastic and churn out vast amounts of fake news and argue with each other and be unpleasant and dishonest that understandably produces sadness and how does that feeling of sadness, that perception of sadness affect us do we have space around it can we feel sad without being lost in sadness or if we're still clinging to feelings then we are likely to get lost in sadness, so then we become despairing. And what does that feel like in the body? Not just as an idea. Recently I was had a uh, conversation with a long-time good friend of the Sangha who was, in the course of the conversation, it, we, we started talking about hope and how I personally think that uh, cultivating skillful hope is a valuable resource in practice, and if we don't have a hopeful disposition, we can fall into hopelessness very easily. You know? It's like a, a nutriment being hopefully disposed towards the future. Uh, and hope can be also uh, akin to faith and trust and confidence. However, it turned out in this conversation with this, this good friend that uh, some, some time ago he had heard teachings which gave him the impression that hope was always uh, not a good thing because it was just another form of deluded desire. Well, that's like saying that aversion is not a good thing. I mean, if, you can, if you can smell the smell of gangrene like rotten flesh and not feel averse towards it, that's very peculiar. Or if you see somebody being a bully and and abusing their authority and not feel aversion for it, that's a very strange thing. If you can look at the world as it is and not feel sad, I would think that's a very strange thing. Feeling sad or, or feeling averse only is a problem if we cling, if awareness collapses around that movement and we become lost in it. Hope is not the problem. Not at all. Mm. Hope can be nourishing. You know, can be very, very helpful. And aversion you know, can be perfectly natural. However, if we don't have a perspective on clinging, if we don't have a well-developed appreciation of how we regularly become lost in these moods, if we don't have a perspective on that, which is often the case when we're still locked up in our heads and just thinking about things. If we don't have perspective on the whole body-mind appreciation of clinging, then we're not going to be making much progress in practice. And also, certainly certainly this state of world weariness, which can be a real benefit, we could miss that benefit. We could miss out on the benefit of this state of mind, this world weariness the the potential has for taking us to letting go taking us to contentment, equanimity clarity, understanding Mm. so if clinging is so makes so much trouble for us, why do we keep doing it? Why do we keep clinging if it causes us so much trouble? I would say it's because we haven't had... Well, two things. One, we haven't had a good enough spiritual education, so we don't even have the theory of the consequences of clinging. We haven't even got that sorted. And the other thing is we haven't given ourselves uh, sincerely enough into the practice, So getting the basic understanding how clinging is the cause of our struggles. Clinging is the cause of all problems. Like we've just been chanting Then the Dhamma Chakapavatana Sutta. Buddha is talking about the cause of suffering. It's, it's, not, it's not desire itself that's the cause of suffering. Desire is just a movement in consciousness. Desire is just a movement in awareness. It's the clinging that creates the problem. And that happens when we don't have proper inner structures established. We don't have real source of support. We don't have a real source of security. We don't have a refuge. In the Buddhist teaching, this encouragement to go for refuge to the Buddha. What is that? It's going for refuge to a selfless just knowing awareness. And even if we don't, if we don't even have the, if we don't even have the theory of that down, then we don't have confidence in the possibility that it's worth cultivating. Selfless, just knowing awareness. If we give ourselves to the cultivation of this, then it helps establish inner structures, which means that we don't have to cling. We don't have to be looking for security in. Attaching to ideas and views or external sources of, like substance abuse. Yeah. Clinging to substances and experiences and addictions. and Fundamentalism, well, one way of understanding fundamentalism is to see it as a compulsive habit of clinging that results from not having proper inner structures. And this includes religious fundamentalism, Um, political fundamentalism, environmental fundamentalism. A lot of what's going on in identity politics is to do with this. The lack of inner structures, the lack of inner resource, the lack of inner strength, means that we seek to find security by clinging to things which are actually not stable. Views are not stable, beliefs are not stable, substances are not stable, no conditioned thing is in itself. Inherently stable. sabe sankara ani The Buddha's teaching all conditioned phenomena is unstable. And so it's an unfortunate misperception that causes us to cling. And in so doing, we spoil the opportunity to benefit. Even sadness can teach us a lot. Feel when we ourselves make mistakes in the way we act or the way we speak and then we feel sad about it, we feel remorse about it, that's actually the medicine, that's, that's the healing so, when we feel remorse for our unskillful actions that's that's supposed to happen and, however if we still don't have a perspective on not clinging, if we don't have a well-enough established refuge in selfless, just-knowing awareness in the Buddha, then even something potentially healing and helpful, like wholesome remorse or sadness, we miss the opportunity and we miss the potential benefit. So these habits of are they really productive? We need to be asking ourselves what happens when we project our authority out onto objects or onto beliefs or external sources of authority? What happens when we project our ability outwardly when we believe the authority lies outside of ourselves? If we were Talking the language of social psychology, I'm sure there is a lot to be said. Uh, that could usefully be said about things that have changed in child-rearing patterns, particularly over the last century. But if we're talking about the spiritual journey and the effect of religious training, we need to be looking to see, do the teachings that we engage with Does the way that we approach practice lead to finding our own inner source of authority, one that's truly dependable, or does it condition us to project our authority outwards onto external agents? Mm -hmm. Certainly from the way the Buddha taught Understand that the effort needs to be looking inwards. Atahi atanō nato You are your own authority. How could it be otherwise? Or literally, atahi no nato. one's self is one's own refuge. I think it's safe enough to say also, it means you are your own authority, how could it be otherwise? This is to be contemplated when we feel intimidated by our own conditioning, our addiction to preferences, get us into trouble, create suffering for ourselves and others. How, where and when are we projecting Authority outwards and do we have to do that? Are we obliged to do that? And how can we stop doing that? How can we stop projecting our authority outwards if that's what we're always doing? A lot of us were brought up to believe that from the word go we were damaged goods and, and the authority lay outside of ourselves. How do we correct that? Well, one way of doing that is to listen to what the Buddha taught about the training in mindfulness, particularly the first foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of body come back into the body whole body awareness so much of our conventional education and habits mean that we are identified in the thinking world, up in our heads and we create a world that we live in, and we occupy you can see from the way people walk how out of touch they are with their body often or when people start to meditate and are invited to pay attention to the breathing or take on some exercise like Tai Chi or Qigong or yoga any of us that have done that are probably familiar with how challenging that can be why is it so challenging? because we're Deeply, fundamentally out of touch with our bodies and believing in the stories. So that's one thing we can do that can start helping us reclaim our authority instead of projecting it out and according to the stories that we were told early on in life and the stories that we're believing. Look at the stories that we believe in. Do I really believe in that? Do I really believe that I am damaged goods? Do I really believe that somebody else or Something else has agency over me. Even if all we can do is give rise to some doubt to start off with, that's a beginning, a helpful beginning. The stories that we believe in about the world, often we were told when we were very, very young, fool us into behaving ways that don't serve our heart's deepest longings. This was... Again, those of you familiar with the scriptures and know the story of the Buddha, in the first 29 years of his life, he spent seeking happiness, Mm -hmm. contentment, looking outwards. Mm -hmm. And then old age, sickness and death triggered world weariness, big time, for the first time. And that was the motivation. That was the motivation that started him out on his journey, That was the arising of nipida, or this world weariness. The party word for world weariness is nipida. Also, there's a related emotion called sangwega, which is nipida plus. In the case of sangwega, there's also this motivation to do something about it. Not a sinking into a state of resignation, being a victim, but I don't want to put up with this. So world weariness, again, if it's received into well-developed mindfulness, can give rise to some and nourish some This, the state that we're well-motivated to do something about it, to get creative, to get interested. Where's the real source of the difficulty here? And we spend all this time seeking happiness through trying to taste what we like to taste, listen to what we like to listen to, go on holidays we want to enjoy, and it still left us feeling dissatisfied. And if we have the good fortune to come across the Buddha's teaching, like we're just chanting just now, the Dhamma Sutta, the Buddha says, Dukkha, that's the thing to be looking at. Dukkha, that's it. That's the thing. It's not happiness that we should be focusing on. Every day, mundane, common and garden variety happiness is not sustainable, it's not dependable, it's not a valuable resource. Not an adequate amount of conventional happiness, uh, for sure, but to make happiness the goal is a massive mistake. What the Buddha discovered, after all those years of serious searching, was that the solution lies in looking at the experience of dukkha itself. Unsatisfactoriness, disappointment. or well, like we were just chanting then, Jatipi dukkha, Jarapi dukkha, Maranampi dukkha. Birth is dukkha, aging is dukkha, death is dukkha, Soka parideva dukkha, Domanasa upayasa, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair are dukkha. And the Buddha mentioned these things, pointed out these things, saying, Look, we're surrounded by this, but we're not paying attention to it, we're not listening to it. This is the message, this is what we should be looking at. But the thing with sukha is we get intoxicated and we think, I want more of that. But that's because we didn't receive good enough education. We didn't realize that pursuing that level of happiness just leads to actually unhappiness. Where the converse is the case, that turning attention around and looking at the feeling of unhappiness, of disappointment, of dissatisfaction, of limitation, this is where we can start to make real progress. Getting really interested now. Again, it's not just believing in these concepts of sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair, and birth, old age, sickness, and death. Those are pointers, which absolutely have their place, but then we need to, we need to apply our attention in a way whereby we start to feel the reality that's being alluded to. Feel the reality of dukkha. What is dukkha? And the different qualities of dukkha. What does dukkha feel like? That feeling of disappointment. Can we feel disappointment with some space around disappointment? Can we feel sadness with some space around sadness? Can we feel world weariness with some space around world weariness? Now, this is again the importance of developing the refuge in selfless, just knowing awareness. So there is this possibility that we can receive this, these messages from reality, and really get interested and really learn them, learn from them. Some forms of dukkha are like are just like little clouds drifting over the sun and obscuring the sun a little bit, and then there's other forms of dukkha which. <clears throat> are like massive, big rain clouds, dark and threatening and obscuring. And they feel different. A minor moment of you know, disappointment because you know, somebody burnt the porridge as well. It's not the end of the world. It's just, okay, tomorrow they won't do it. so It's not the end of the world. And it'll pass. And then heavier dukkha, Uh, a serious misunderstanding in a relationship somebody you cared about and and then fell out with that feels much more threatening and then there is more even heavier threatening like fog you're walking through fog and it seems to embrace us sometimes and even worse like really heavy, thick fog. If you've ever walked through really heavy, thick fog, you can barely see a meter in front of you. And you can't see where you're going. Sometimes dukkha feels like that. All-consuming. All of me feels bad. Can we get interested in dukkha and study it so as to dispel these myths that we were taught by people who weren't awakened and hadn't been adequately educated with regards to reality. I would suggest this is what it takes. uh, Getting really interested in the actual experience of dukkha. Now, we can hear these teachings and uh, have faith in them, and be in fact relieved to hear this is, this is making sense. The stories that I've been told really weren't making sense. This makes sense. However, it's not the case that just because we have confidence and energetically give ourselves into the training that all dukkha falls away according to our preferences. So maybe the question arises, after all this effort that I'm making, how come I'm still suffering? It's a fair enough question. Well, one thing that we could consider with regards to this question is that in the past we've denied dukkha. We have an accumulation of unreceived dukkha and we don't know the momentum. We don't know. There's no way we can know the momentum of our unreceived dukkha. And because we tend to be keen and enthusiastic to overcome our suffering we sometimes get a little bit unreasonable in our demands and so it can be useful in fact it is useful to factor in the fact that we don't know we just don't know the kama the that we're carrying, we just don't know it and we have to find ways of learning how to be okay about that and that some of it is going to be heavy and some of it not so heavy. The momentum of some dukkha is easy. You can just ride it out. It's like if you've ever been, you've ever been body surfing and you're riding just a sort of moderate-sized wave, and you get pulled under. It's no big deal. You get out again and take a breath of fresh air and swim out and ride another wave. However, if you're riding a really big wave, if you're body surfing a really big wave and you get pulled under, you can get slammed into the sand and really hurt. Mm. Well, so it is with Dukkha. We need to be ready to study Dukkha. What is this particular mood that comes over me sometimes in this sort of situation? if i'm with these kind of people or this kind of this time of the day like when i wake up in the morning or or this kind of challenge produces this kind of dukkha to get interested in that and and to accept that we don't know where it all came from there's some of the dukkha is we've generated it self-generated dukkha because we resisted we resisted life and so it's generated dukkha. and Not just this life but past lives as well. We, we carry the responsibility for the, the resistance to reality that we have registered in, in consciousness. And there's also, and as is worth bearing in mind, what could be called assimilated dukkha. For instance, if you Caught up in a family where there's a lot of prejudice around or in an environment where you're the subject of persecution, you belong to a minority group, you get persecuted. Other people project their dukkha onto you. But especially if it happens at an early stage of life. Prejudice, persecution. You can, it's not necessarily dukkha that we've generated ourselves, but... It's through association with other people's dukkha we can assimilate that. And and the dukkha that we've already got stored away gets exacerbated. It's like inflaming the condition. It's like energy. The energy of other people's projected suffering joins with our suffering. And we can end up carrying that as well. So the momentum of dukkha that we're carrying is very difficult to know. Where it came from is very difficult to know. However, if we get really interested in it and in study it, instead of just resisting it, instead of naively, blindly pursuing an escape from it by covering it up with kind of momentary happiness, if we get interested in the core condition of unawareness, then maybe we start to find a personal quality of confidence and strength in practice not mere belief also in response to that question of why isn't letting go happening during all this practice and having this commitment and faith in the Buddha's teachings and yet still keep getting pulled into habits of clinging well, there's something else we need to be looking at, and that is the the um, the quality of our container. <clears throat> this transformation of greed, hatred, and delusion into something that is inherently beautiful this requires very strong sense of containment i sometimes think about the transformation of a caterpillar into a butterfly the caterpillar we can look at and be fascinated by cute little thing and, and then a butterfly of course and, and be really delightful to look at but how much do we appreciate the function of the chrysalis the containment of that process of transformation. And for us in the on the spiritual journey, the container is multidimensional, and I've spoken many times before about how important, how essential the quality of self-respect is on this journey. And do we respect ourselves enough? Because if we're lacking in self-respect, then something's really missing. And where does self-respect come from? It comes from our commitment to integrity. So that's something we could be looking at. Are we compromising integrity? Certainly the world we live in these days is so much now that's encouraging of manipulation and dishonesty and commonly held belief that everybody's lying. That's really unhelpful. Even if you think you get away with lying it causes imbalance inwardly and then we have to live with that so upgrading our commitment to integrity and then experiencing the benefit of increased self-respect also the commitment that we have in this practice of Cultivating a container, with looking at community. There's no coincidence that the Buddha talked about the third refuge as sangha, which means community. Ultimately, the container needs to be satipanya, real, well-established sati and panya. That's the real container. However, in the process of cultivating the real container that supports us in this process of transformation, we do depend on each other. We do depend on community. We need each other. And so spiritual community, sadly, for a lot of people, that's misunderstood. Like they're saying the, the Chrysalis stage of the transformation of the caterpillar into the butterfly. There's not necessarily a lot of attention paid to the chrysalis, that which supports us until we've got a real source of inner support is spiritual companionship so if we're wondering why letting go is not happening why we're still getting pulled into habits of clinging, well this is something else that we could work on work on developing, finding a spiritual community and one of the really good things about technology. I mean, there's many unfortunate aspects of human society get amplified through technology, but one of the really good things is how it puts us in touch with each other, and it's not the same thing as necessarily living with each other in spiritual community, but there can be real benefit found from that. And finding spiritual companions, valuing spiritual companions, and honouring spiritual companions. When we find a community of people who with whom we share a spiritual aspiration really valuing that and showing respect to that and being very careful about any habits that we might have to be overly critical now within the spiritual community there is a hopefully a time and place where right criticism can be expressed for the sake of mutual benefit however there's always the risk of heedless Criticism. So if we have an appreciation of how essential community is as a container for this process, letting go is not going to happen if we don't feel safe. And part of generating that sense of feeling safe is being part of a community. Even if we do have well-developed appreciation for a spiritual community, even if we do have a well-developed sense of self-respect and a commitment to integrity, still that doesn't mean to say that letting go is going to happen Mm. on our terms, Mm. as and when we want it. And so we're still faced with the actuality of not knowing. So that's also important, very important in this practice. We don't know when letting go is going to happen. We don't know when Real disenchantment is going to happen. We don't know when sustainable clarity and understanding is going to emerge. And it's wise to learn how to be okay about not knowing, seeing the disadvantage and always struggling to prop ourselves up with some sort of synthetic sense of security. Of course we don't know. And there doesn't have to be anything wrong with that. And thank you very much this evening for your attention.